Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our scripture readings this morning will be two passages from the uh, prophet Isaiah, beginning uh, with Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And we'll move on to Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I think it is appropriate that we are considering the idea of Advent. Advent is a season in which we are reminded that God is making good on his promises. We will focus on four of those promises in Isaiah 7, 9, and 11. And we will end this season in Isaiah 12. And I'll explain why we've selected those passages and those chapters. 
Is the Bible relevant? Does it speak to our needs? Does it address where we are in the horizontal right now as his people? And my response to that is absolutely. On November 21st, tragedy visited multiple families in our Waukesha community. All of us are fully aware of that situation. There is an equal outpouring of both blinding rage toward the perpetrators and sympathetic response toward the victimized. What are we to think? What are we to do in such moments? Pastor Giles sent out an initial response on behalf of the elders to our church family. He wrote, which I believe very appropriately and succinctly, our hearts are heavy as a result of yesterday's tragic events at the Christmas parade. Circumstances like these are difficult to reconcile on the horizontal. As we wrestle with what took place, a tension often arises between our emotions and our theology. We often have more questions than answers, and the answers we are assured of don't always provide the solutions we want in the present moment. While we are careful not to provide trite or cliché responses to such weighty events, we are also concerned about leading our emotions with the truth of the gospel without being callously theological or biblically shallow. We've all been exposed to well-intended band-aid passages that have the reverse effect than attended. The hope that you and I have as the people of God must be firmly rooted, must be firmly sourced in the Bible. We do have responses to such situations and the book of Isaiah and the prophecies we will consider speak to these moments in life. Last week, Mike Davis, in following up on Sola de Gloria, made the statement, does sin glorify God? That's what we are dealing with in the horizontal. Does sin glorify God? His emphatic answer was no. And he made the following qualifier, but the judgment on sin and the redemption from sin does. Thus, will God be glorified by the tragedies that we encounter in the horizontal? And the answer is an emphatic yes. The judgment against it and the redemption from it will indeed glorify God. Our intent isn't to lessen the severity of the circumstances, and we will note several but to set them in the rich theology of the scripture and to take comfort, not just in the present oversight of a sovereign God. God is sovereign, and God is involved in everything that is taking place in the horizontal. But also to have hope in his ultimate and inevitable deliverance in Christ Jesus when he makes all things new. Those hearts that have been broken will remain broken. And they will remain broken until Jesus comes. But they can find the peace that is in Christ Jesus. The Bible does speak to these moments, and Isaiah the prophet, the study that we will have for the next four weeks, has a word for us today during this Advent season where loss and absence loom perpetually on our horizon. We are going to look at these prophecies as they are found inside of the book of Isaiah. We are not going to do a formal or exhaustive introduction to Isaiah, but I do want to, for the sake of the study, look at the historical context in which those statements are made. When we realize that what they encountered in 700 BC is what we encounter right now in 2021, and what Isaiah said to the nation and what he says to us now is equally valid and is to fill us in the midst of our brokenness with hope. One of the things that we will encounter 
is whether or not the Bible does indeed tell a single story and at the center of this is Jesus. One of the tensions that you see is people treating the Old Testament in the absence of the New or the New in the absence of the Old. What Isaiah says to his audience finds ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we are a Christocentric, a gospel-centric fellowship. It colors how we read the text. And we believe that there is a single story with Jesus at the center. We are not fabricating, and I'll show you this in a moment, but we are not fabricating an unreal link between the two stories that is unprovable and unsustainable. What Isaiah says in 7 is fulfilled in Jesus. What Isaiah says in 9 is fulfilled in Jesus. What Isaiah says in 11 is fulfilled in Jesus. And why? Because the Bible does indeed tell a single story. And at the center of this story is Jesus Christ. What is interesting is that apart from the Psalms, the Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. But apart from the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the entire Bible. And it underlines many of the key themes that are found inside the scripture. The occurrences of quotations from Isaiah at key points in the Luke-Acts narrative have persuaded many that Isaiah's vision of a new exodus and a new creation inspired the early Christian church. And they've, they've identified that continuity and then stated that Isaiah should be considered as the fifth gospel. Isaiah is a book, when properly understood, as a book of hope. Isaiah might be called the prophet for the New Testament. Isaiah is quoted more than twice as much as any other major prophet and more than all of the minor prophets combined. So when we look at Isaiah, Isaiah was leaned on heavily by the New Testament author because Isaiah, more than anyone else, pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The prophecy of Isaiah is strikingly similar to the entire Bible, which can be seen in the following comparison. There are some 66 direct quotations from Isaiah in the New Testament. Some people have found as many as 85 quotations and allusions to Isaiah in the New Testament. 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament refer to Isaiah. 12 books of the New Testament have direct quotations. So as we consider these prophecies as they are found in chapters 7 through 12, our intent during the Advent season isn't to have a full study of Isaiah, but to see how Isaiah does indeed speak to where we are right now as his people. The weight of what the prophet says, and many of us, when we look at these prophecies, will realize, oh, I know that. I know that. I know that. But the weight of what Isaiah says is more notable when viewed in its historical context. And therefore, I want us to consider what's happening within the nation proper as we move forward in considering these prophecies. The nation of Israel was a unified nation under King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. With King Solomon, after his reign, the kingdom split in 933-932 BC. Ten of the twelve tribes migrated north. Two tribes remained in the south. This is happening in 933. The prophecies of Isaiah, the writings of Isaiah, the ministry of Isaiah is taking place in about 700 BC. So 200 years later, Isaiah is ministering to this fractured nation. The ten northern tribes were fearful under Jeroboam of migrating back to Jerusalem during the feast days. And thus they created an entirely different calendar season so that the ten northern tribes would not migrate back to Jerusalem 
and thus the nation, the ten northern tribes, and Jeroboam would lose their grip on the people. So they created the two golden calves, Dan and Bethel. But you have this situation taking place within the nation that there's tremendous apostasy. Now we know that the seed promise of Genesis 3.15 falls on King David on the line of Judah. So all the kings in the south who are Judah, Judah kings enjoy what is called a theocratic anointing, but all of them are part of that seed promise. There are good kings and there are bad kings, and we note that in just a moment. When you think of the bad kings in Israel, in Isaiah chapter 1, it lists those kings that Isaiah is serving under. It makes the statement, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah, Judah and Benjamin are the two southern tribes, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of the nation, in the days of Uzziah. That's why we had Isaiah 6 read, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was a very, very good king. The people were looking to him for their hope. The nation was experiencing prosperity, and he dies. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah 6, if nothing else, is telling us in the midst of our calamity in the horizontal, when bad things are happening to good people, to whom or to what should we be looking? We should be looking to God. What you and I need to see right now is God sitting upon his throne, ruling and reigning over the nations. Amen? If we fail to have that, we have a problem. But it says in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, it doesn't mention the son of Hezekiah, which is Manasseh. Isaiah probably leaned into the reign of King Manasseh, and he died under Manasseh's reign, and there's much that could be said concerning that. But Ahaz, chapter 7, verse 1, and then Manasseh are wicked Judean kings. They're wicked people. Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah are very good kings. They are following or obeying the law. But when you look at the time period in which Isaiah prophesied, in which he preached, in which he ministered, it was about a 40-year period of time. He was there with Uzziah when the nation was experiencing a godly good king. The nation was prospering. The nation was strong. That death then transferred to his son Jotham. Jotham is then reigning. He's ruling. His reign is solid. It's good for about a 16-year period of time. But it goes from chapter 6, the death of Uzziah, to chapter 7, the reign of Ahaz. It leaves out Jotham, but he's mentioned in the opening statement. Then you have Ahaz. Ahaz is a wicked king. Ahaz works all the way until his son takes over, who is Hezekiah. We read of Hezekiah in chapter 36 through 39. And then his reign goes all the way from chapters 40 and following, and it doesn't mention Manasseh, but you have a period that is very unsettling. And when you look at chapter 7, verse 1, I'm going to turn there. So chapter 6, King Uzziah dies. Between 6 and 7, you have Jotham. Jotham is not mentioned, except in the opening statement, but Jotham is a good king. And then you have Ahaz. So Uzziah is good. He dies. The people's hearts are hurting. You have Jotham, and then you have Ahaz. Notice chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, which is just north of Israel, 
uh, the ten northern tribes. Then you have Assyria. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So you have this alliance between Syria and the ten northern tribes, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So there's no natural border between the ten northern tribes and the two, tri- two southern tribes. There's no natural border. And for 200 years, there is this anarchy or chaos taking place. Things are not going well, and they will not go well in the immediate. But now you have this threat coming from the north to the nation, and the means of stopping that threat are minimal. And notice verse 2 of chapter 7, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Israel, the heart of Ahaz, King Ahaz, who was a bad king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That is a poetic way of saying they were scared witless. They were absolutely trembling at what was taking place. You think of the context in which we as a people live today, and you think of what they were experiencing as a divided nation over an extended period of time. You think of the civil war that's taking place between these two nations. You think of the social unrest and uneasiness. You think of the cultural and moral decay taking place within the nations. They have a leaky national border and insecurity. There's no means of stopping. There are good and godly people in the north who are trying to get to the south. But you also have this flood of people coming who want to hurt the nation. You have this religious syncretism taking place between the two golden calves in Judaism in the south. You have out-of-control national debt. You have economic disparity between classes. You have inept leadership destroying the nation. You have military incompetence and softness. And you have inter-nation disrespect. All this is taking place within the nation proper. And you say, well, Pastor Pat, that sounds like what's going on right now in our world. You just made it up. That's what's happening. How are you and I going to fix that? It's the same thing that came to the nation. And as we study Isaiah, we will see that. What is Isaiah's response to that moment, to that situation? Think of what's taking place even as a people. On Wednesday, November 30th, Oakland County Sheriff Michael Bouchard released new details about the Oxford High School shooting that left four dead and seven injured. Ethan Crumbly, 15 years old, had been charged as an adult in the case. He was a sophomore student at Oxford High School and he killed four people and injured seven. We are quite familiar with what has taken place in our own city. The man accused of driving an SUV through Waukesha's Christmas parade on November 21st said he is being dehumanized and demonized, and we read that and we think, what in the world is going on in in our world today? According to an interview with Fox News at the jail where he was being held, and I could list all the people who have died because of his actions. We have just heard recently that the Waukesha Fire Department ordered the evacuation of a condominium and surrounding properties Thursday evening, December 2nd or 3rd, citing an imminent threat of collapse due to compromised conditions of existing structural columns, according to a city news release. I think most of us are familiar with that area. And not only is the building collapsing, but you have 48 family units being displaced and potentially losing everything that they have 
in the collapse of their situation? Am I directly affected by what's going on there? But does that affect me? Absolutely. So we talk about Israel, we talk about their historical context, and we think, that was awful, but that's no different than what you and I as a people are experiencing right now in our situation. There are people who are suffering right now inside our family of families that we are not made aware of because of of privacy. But they are suffering. They are potentially transitioning between life and death, and that is impacting them as families. Do we as a fellowship and do we as Christians have a word for that? Does Isaiah speak to that? The question that Isaiah asks his audience and we are confronted with as people is simply this. To what or to whom are we trusting in? That's why I said earlier, the brokenness that we are encountering isn't necessarily going to go away. But is it possible within the brokenness to still have a peace that is only found in Christ Jesus? The answer has to be an emphatic yes. What we see inside of Isaiah is that Isaiah is calling the people of God to trust him. To trust him. I am going to take the time to read these passages so that we feel the weight of what Isaiah is saying. And I think to myself, well, God is telling the people to trust him. What does that mean? What does that look like? What do you do? Let's consider these passages. In chapter 12, verse 2, we will study this passage further on in the next four weeks. Verse 2 says, Behold, in Isaiah 12 is like a psalm. It's confessional. It's a hymn. It's being sung. And Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. To what or to whom are you looking? God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. Isaiah 7 through 12 is called the book of Emmanuel. In the midst of all this, the nations from the north are pressing on the two nations in the south. It looks devastating, catastrophic. And what does Isaiah say to the people? Have hope in God. Will that turn away the wickedness that they are dealing with in the horizontal? Not necessarily. But hope in God. In chapter 26, verses 3 and 4, listen again to this refrain. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What answer do we have as individuals, but corporately as a church, to the situation in which we exist? If we don't say it, who will? Trust in God. Chapter 31, verse 1, listen to the language. And the historical context only heightens what the prophet is saying. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh the Lord. To what or to whom do we look to in the midst of all this brokenness? What do we do with this? Chapter 36, 
Chapters 36 through 39 are somewhat of an historical interlude. The book of Isaiah is divided into two sections, 1 through 39, then 40 through 66. In chapters 1 through 39, 36 through 39 is the seventh volume, and it gives the historical context in which the Assyrians from the north, and the Assyrians were ruthless people, and I'll I'll comment on that in just a moment, but they were pressing in on the nation of Judah. Hezekiah is king. And in the midst of all this, the Assyrian ambassadors are coming and taunting the people of Israel. And they make these statements, verse 4, And Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? That's the same challenge that we hear from the world around us. You're telling me to simply trust God, to believe in God, that God will somehow bring deliverance. Now, in this context, he does. Immediate context and destroys the Assyrians. But it sounds so empty, so hollow. It sounds as if we speak in a cave and all we hear is the sound of our own voice. And yet the prophet, in the midst of this historical context, calls the nation to trust Yahweh. It doesn't mean that our brokenness will go away. But it does mean that in the midst of our brokenness, we can have a peace that does pass all understanding. We know that there is this pressing context, and and this is something that colors everything. The Assyrians, and this is true of most uh, overbearing nations, but the Assyrians were marked by three things. When they conquered a people, they would take people and pale them on poles. And it would tell people, don't mess with us. It is far better to surrender and submit than to resist and fight. But the Assyrians were known for this. They would impale people on poles as a warning. They would enter places, lope off everybody's heads, and make pyramids. It said, don't mess with me. They would poke out people's eyes. They would flay people alive and take their skins and put them on the outside of the cities. And it said, don't mess with us. If we saw that type or that level of cruelty, what would our response be? Fear and trembling. To whom or to what can we look to for deliverance, for rescue? Isaiah comes along and says to God, trust God. That's the historical context in which the message of Isaiah is uttered. Now, let's for just a moment, and I'm really setting us up for an understanding of the book proper, but let us consider the structure of Isaiah, because that's that's really where we see the text. When you think of the Eiffel Tower, and I'll use the Eiffel Tower as an example of structure. When you think of the Eiffel Tower, when the French government was organizing the International Exposition of 1889, they had a competition for a design for a suitable monument. More than 100 plans were submitted, and the Centennial Committee accepted that of the noted bridge engineer, Gustav Eiffel. Eiffel's concept was to build a 984 tower, almost entirely of open lattice iron, wrought iron. It was finished in two years, two months, and five days. It used 7,500 tons of iron and 2.5 million rivets. What most people don't know is that there's a secret apartment at the top of the Eiffel Tower. 
and it was supposed to be torn down after 20 years. Hitler ordered the Eiffel Tower to be destroyed, which I found interesting because when, when uh, Germany came into France, they cut the elevators, so anyone from Germany that wanted to go up to the top had to walk all the way up. The massive iron structure is wind-resistant and will sway during a storm. If the weather is bad enough, it can even move. Wind isn't the only thing that can make the enormous tower move, though the heat of the sun also affects the tower, causing the iron to expand and contract up to seven inches. It takes a lot of work to make the Eiffel Tower look good. Every seven years, around 60 tons of paint are applied to the tower. It not only keeps the so-called Iron Lady looking good, but it also keeps the iron from rusting. There is also a military bunker underneath the Eiffel Tower and a champagne bar at the top. And I know some of you have been to the Eiffel Tower. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, just like the Eiffel Tower, the Bible has intentional structure. And just like the Eiffel Tower, there are things about that structure that you and I are not aware of, but when we see it, we go, wow, that's really cool. Well, that's what not only the Bible has as a whole, but also the book of Isaiah as a singular book. When you look at the book of Isaiah, and it's often debated by academics as to whether or not there's a second or third Isaiah, as if it's a compilation by two or three different authors over an extended period of time. I am of the opinion that there is a single author who wrote the book of Isaiah. Part of the reasoning as to why I believe that is true is because the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is only used, uh, let's see, 12, uh, 14, 12 is 26, plus 5, 31. Of its occurrences, 12 are used in the first 39 chapters, 14 in the second 27 chapters, and then five other occurrences outside the entire Old Testament. So when you look at the unity of Isaiah proper, it is identifiable based on the occurrence of the phrase. The passage we had read earlier in John 12, 38 through 41, cites Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 as coming from a singular author. When the scroll of Isaiah was found in the Qumran community at the Dead Sea Scrolls, where chapter 39 ends and where chapter 40 begins are on the same, in the same column. It isn't as if they saw it as two separate works. So they've treated Isaiah as a singular work. What's equally interesting about Isaiah 66 is that the first section is 39 chapters. The second section is 27. We know that we call it the fifth gospel. We know that the entire Bible has 66 chapters. We know that the first section of our Bible has 39 books. We know that there is a dominant idea of judgment, which we find in the first 39 chapters. And we know that in the last 27, there is this resonating theme of hope. So we see this cohesiveness to the entire book. In addition, when we look at the first 39 chapters in Isaiah, you can break it down into seven volumes. I've mentioned earlier how the seventh volume runs from chapter 36 to 39 with this historical interlude concerning the king Hezekiah and the invading nation of Assyria. What we also note is that chapters 7 through 12 is called the book of Emmanuel. If I were to take the time today, which I won't because we'll explore it further next week and in the following weeks, 7 through 12 is called the book of Emmanuel. In chapter 7, we have the prophecy of a virgin birth. Chapter 9, we have a son will be given, a child will be born. 
In chapter 11, we have lions and lambs lying down together. In chapter 12, we have this statement of praise. But we will look at all of Isaiah just as it is found inside of the second volume called the Book of Emmanuel. What's pretty cool about structure as well is that the last 27 chapters are made up of three nine-equal chapters. So three times nine is 27. And each of those divisions have what's called a chiasm where you have four chapters and they culminate in the middle and then you have four chapters. Well, each of those nine, each of those three sections with nine chapters have a center chapter. And the center chapter, for example, in the second section of nine, are you still with me? Second section of nine in the latter part of Isaiah, in the second section, the middle chapter is Isaiah 53. So there's this intentional structure to the book that God, through Isaiah, put in play. And there's these key elements that are absolutely essential in looking at it. Now, what we are going to look at when we we look at the the book of Emmanuel is this whole idea of uh, prophecy. And we've been reiterating this uh, recently, and I'm just wanting to remind us what we're dealing with. For example... When you look at Isaiah chapter 7 and you have this statement concerning a virgin birth, the historical context for that virgin birth is Isaiah's wife who gives birth to a child and the birth of that child is assigned to the nation. That is the historical context. But if we did not have what is said in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, when Matthew says... This is in fulfillment of that prophecy that a virgin will be with child. We would not know that Isaiah 7.14 is a prophetic statement concerning Jesus Messiah. We would not know that. But the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. That's why we have to understand how this thing progresses. You have this partial application to the immediate audience but there is this greater application to the nations as it's found in Christ Jesus. So you have Isaiah 7, which many people would say is prophetic, but then you have fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus as used by the New Testament author. And thus, this is that. You see it repeated and that pattern repeated throughout the New Testament. You see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 1 when it lists the kings in verses 1 and 2, And then you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 9. There's this intentional link between what is being stated in Isaiah and then what we see in Jesus. And you see that in the listing of the genealogy. And there's this intentionality, this structure that's put in play. What we have to see as we study Isaiah is that there is indeed a singular story. And there's this intentional tie between what the prophet says in Isaiah and what we see fulfilled in Jesus. So when we look through this Advent season in chapters 7 through 12, what we will see in their historical context is a hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the three takeaways, and I'm really wanting us to simply embed ourselves in the historical context in which these statements come out of. But what we see is, first of all, God has made a promise, and he will fulfill the promise through Israel and the nations. So whatever promises we read of in Isaiah, especially the book of Emmanuel, we will see them fulfilled to the nation, then through the nation to the nations. 
Jesus Christ is the ultimate means through which the nations will be blessed. God has made good on a promise. That promise to us sometimes seems vague. It seems distant, as if it were looking through a fog or a cloud. But rest assured, what God has promised will come to pass. The second thing that we have to understand as we look at Isaiah is that what you and I see in the horizontal is not the full story. If you watch the news, if you somehow have any intake of what's going on in our community and in our nation and in our world, you cannot help but be discouraged and depressed. And on top of all that, we're walking into the winter months when it's light by eight and dark by four. It's just depressing, isn't it? You go to work when it's dark and you come home when it's dark. But what you and I see in the horizontal is not the full story, amen? Come, Lord Jesus. The third thing that we see is that God is not reacting or responding to our choices. We are reacting or responding to his choices. We've got to keep God where he is, on a throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. In the midst of all this tragedy that's visiting you as an individual, as a family, as a community, as a nation, as a world, do you see the Lord? Not do you understand what's going on, not can you explain it, but do you see him? The question that Isaiah asks us, we must ask ourselves. To what or to whom are we trusting in? To what or to whom are we looking? I'm confronted by that idea every day of my life. I get anxious. I get excited. I get discouraged. I can have moments of darkness. And I must ask myself, to what or to whom am I looking? To what or to whom am I Am I trusting? It doesn't make all the bad and broken go away. But it does give you a peace, a place of rest. And if anything, that is what Isaiah is telling us. The bad person wasn't going to go away simply because Isaiah said, hope in God. But in the midst of that, hope in God. Advent is a season where we remember that God is making good on his promises. I would like to close by reading chapter 12 one more time. In Isaiah 12, because Isaiah 7 through 12 is a unit. 7 is the virgin birth, 9, and all of it ties together. 9 is a Jesus statement, 11 is a Jesus statement, and then 12. 12 ends the section, and remember the context. The nation is being invaded. And Isaiah says in this section, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. 
Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray. Our Father God, we look at the world in which we live, and it's no different than what surrounded the nation in 700 B.C. We are anxious. We are filled with despair and discouragement. It seems as if darkness and wickedness is winning. And yet, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train, his presence, his glory filled the temple. Father, we are thankful for the gathering where we can be reminded once more of your gracious oversight and hope-filled promises of something that is both immediate and far-reaching. When we see the evil and malicious actions of men and women, our hearts sink, and we cry out in utter desperation, and our emotions are marked by this darkness and defeat. And yet, Father, we believe in you. We believe Jesus is the answer, and the Holy Spirit is causing us to see life through your lens. Your word is real and legitimate as we respond to a broken world. We do act and we do respond, but let us do it from the gospel. Cause our words to be gospel words. Cause our hands and our feet to be gospel hands and feet. Let us not simply act, but to speak and to do gospel. Father, it's our desire as we come to Isaiah to realize that he spoke to a broken world. And to that world, he said, hope in God. Sing songs of praise and give thanks. So, Father God, enable us to do so as your people. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.